Oh, that is one of my favorite hymns, Rock of Ages. Love that. Worship has been wonderful, bringing us to the cross, bringing us to our great God. It's been wonderful already this morning. Well, we are continuing, as you know, our summer sermon series. It is entitled Growing a Culture of Discipleship. That is our theme for this year. That is the summer sermon series because this is our goal at EBC. That discipleship, whether one-on-one or in small groups, larger groups, that discipleship, maybe formal or informal, would become a part of our culture and our life here at this church. For the last four weeks, we have seen foundational principles for this kind of discipleship culture. We saw the basis the basis of our discipling of others from Mark chapter 8, the basis being Christ's call for us to follow him. We are a disciple of Christ first. It translates then into discipling others. We then heard Christ's call to discipleship in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Those are our marching orders. That's Christ's calling upon our lives. It doesn't matter where you work, where you live, who you are as a believer, that is Christ's call upon your life. We then saw the goals of discipleship from Colossians chapter 1. What happens in discipleship relationships? Well, there's salvation from sin. There's, eternal, there's an eternal mindset. There's sanctification into the image of Christ. There's then a growing service within the body. Those are the goals to which we turn to the benefits last week, the benefits of discipleship, because there are costs involved. What are the benefits from Colossians chapter 2? The benefits of a culture of discipleship where people first apply God's word to themselves. They don't stop there. They make that transition, that application and then intentionally devote themselves to others for their spiritual growth. That's discipleship. It's selflessness. It's an intentionality. Well, where that exists, that discipleship exists, what we saw last time, the benefits are a fortified heart. There's a unity in love. There's an assurance in Christ. There's a growing in holiness, a soundness in our doctrine. There's a necessary reminder that the benefits of discipleship far outweigh the costs involved in discipling others. And so for the last four or so weeks, I hope that you have been able to see just how vitally important discipleship is, not only to yourself personally, but to the church corporately together. Discipleship is how the gospel is guarded. It's how the gospel is passed down. Think of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, You therefore, my son, the apostle now speaking to his son in the faith, Timothy, you therefore be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So now the question is this, how... Does spiritual strength work? Or what does spiritual strength look like? What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? Well, notice verse 2. 
strength in the Lord, then takes the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and then entrust them. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That spiritual strength. So if you're here and you are not intentionally giving yourself to others, if you're fine on your own, I don't need anyone. I'm good with my Bible and my podcasts. I don't need anybody else. You're not spiritually strong. You're spiritually weak. Like we looked at last week, you're loveless, not caring for one another, but you're also proud because we need one another. We need one another. That's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. There's four generations of believers in verse two. There's Paul. Then there's Timothy. Paul invests in Timothy. Timothy then in turn invests himself in faithful men. And then those faithful men invest themselves in others. Who then continues the process. And so faithfulness to Christ demands discipleship of Christ's people. Faithfulness to Christ demands discipleship of Christ's people. Which brings us then to this morning. This morning, here's the question. What does a discipleship relationship actually look like? We've talked about it. We have general principles, but what does a discipleship relationship actually look like? Very practically speaking, whether one-on-one, smaller groups, informal, formal, what does this look like? What are the key characteristics that should mark that relationship? Uh, Put it differently, what separates a discipleship relationship from every other relationship we can experience? What makes it unique? What makes it special, a necessity? So I want to delve into this a bit this morning. What kind of relationships are we longing to see permeate throughout this church? What kind of relationships should we be praying for, for others and for ourselves? And there are eight key markers, eight key markers of a discipleship relationship. Eight markers to keep in mind as we seek to intentionally and selflessly Devote ourselves to others for their spiritual growth. We're going to look at each this morning. That's crazy. This should be an eight-week series, at least. Ten weeks. But we're going to look at each of them this morning. You can apply these uh, to yourself as we work our way through that. Marker number one. Begin with this. Marker number one. What makes these discipleship relationships unique, special? Number one, a discipleship relationship is a purposeful relationship. It's a purposeful relationship. So every discipleship relationship has a purpose, a goal, a main goal. And that is maturity in the faith. Maturity in the faith. It's what we looked at for the last two weeks. It's what is written in Colossians 1.28. It's up here. You don't have to turn there. Colossians 1.28, it's completeness. It's a development. It's a maturity in Christ. Adulthood. Adulthood in Christ. And that word completeness, teleos, it's not perfection. It's not sinlessness. 
But again, it's maturity. It's being fully grown. It speaks of a quality of being wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. That's what we're shooting for in discipleship. When we disciple others, that's what we want when we're being discipled. A wholehearted devotion to Christ in all that we say and do and think and are. Now, just take a step back. Maybe that's why you might not want to be in a discipleship relationship. That's a high calling. Completeness in Christ. It's going to mean repentance. Confession. But that's the call. That's the purpose, the goal. This word complete. It's used in the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used in Genesis 6. Noah was a righteous man, blameless. Same word, complete, wholeheartedly committed to the Lord. Noah spoke God's words. Noah sought God's will. Wholehearted. Abraham walked before God and was Blameless, again, same word, wholehearted there. He's following after God. You can even think of Abraham. He obeys God's commands when they don't even make sense. Again, wholehearted commitment. So here's the necessary purpose, the necessary goal of every discipleship relationship. Total devotion to the Lord. A blamelessness in your conduct, you're fully developed, Spiritually mature. Now, this is another passages, the same goal. What is it? The goal of discipleship is to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. Walk in the same manner as Christ walked. That's the goal. That's the purpose. Romans 12, the goal of discipleship is to not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed into the image of of Jesus. Everything wants to conform us to this world. Everything. And Paul says, take a stand against that and guard the mind and be transformed. Why? So that you may prove what the will of God is, so that you can walk before the Lord blameless. In the words of Ephesians 5, the goal of discipleship is to walk, live, as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. This is holy living. This is daily obedience. It's a conforming of our thoughts, our desires, plans, wills. Conforming all of that to the glory of our Savior. Here's the prayer. The prayer of every discipleship relationship. Here's the prayer. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Listen to Paul's words. May the God of peace himself, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May holiness permeate your life. That's the prayer. And may your spirit, soul, and body, everything of who you are, nothing's left out. May that be preserved, complete, the entirety of your life devoted to Christ. Without blame, let your life be free from any accusation of sin. Freedom from that. 
How long? Until or at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the goal of every discipleship relationship. It's a life of faithfulness until the return of Jesus. That's the prayer of discipleship. Which means, I can bring some application now, which means that in a discipleship relationship, there must be mutual accountability between the discipler and the disciplee. Mutual accountability. It means that in that relationship, sin must not be coddled or excused. Discipleship is about holiness. It's about being weaned off of this world. It's not getting together and just complaining about everything in the world. That's not discipleship. It means that Christ must be the focus. It means that a life of righteousness must be the target. And this is what separates this discipleship relationship from every other relationship there is. It's what makes it so unique and needed. We're purposeful. We have that singular goal in mind. It's a relationship that spurs one another. It's not just one-sided. It's one another to a life of holiness. That's sermon number one. Let's go to sermon number two. Marker number two. Marker number two. If growth in holiness is going to take place, let's just build on this. If that purpose is going to be realized, growth in holiness is going to take place, then a discipleship relationship must also be a teaching relationship, a teaching relationship. Which means that God's word must be primary. God's word must be primary. Not our own thoughts. God's word. Go therefore and make Disciples, how? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We know the calling. We know our marching orders. Teaching them. And its most basic level, the word disciple means learner. Most basic level. A disciple is a learner. When we apply this word to God's people, we're disciples, we're learners of the scriptures. Learners of the scriptures, pupils of God's word. Why? Because God's word is God's appointed means through which he sanctifies his children. God's word is his appointed means through which he sanctifies his children. You can take a look at the Old Testament. You can, you can trace this through. God's word is how God mediates his presence to his people. You, you have a phrase in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came to, and you can fill in the blank. It's God's word mediating his presence. It's through God's word that God grants new hearts and new loves. It's James 1. It's through God's word that he grows us in holiness. Again, this is true in the old, it's true in the new. Psalm 1, how blessed, how blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Discipleship is about delighting in God's word together. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Discipleship is about meditating in God's truth. Well, what's the result? He, the promise, he will be like a tree firmly 
planted by streams of water. He will be faithful, which yields its fruit in season. He will be fruitful, and its leaf does not wither. He'll be enduring, and in whatever he does, he prospers. It's all based upon God's truth, his word. Think of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart to treasure. I've stored it up. What is the result that I might not sin against you? So notice that connection. You store God's word and you don't sin against God. Psalm 119.33, through your precepts, I get understanding. And again, what is the result? Therefore, I hate every false way. Verse 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's the Old Testament principle where God's word is treasured, where it's let, uh, let guiding our life. We then walk in holiness. This is true in the New Testament. John 17, Lord, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 1 Peter 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. Again, why? So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's growth and holiness contingent upon your longing for the word. So sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit by which he uses his word to change us into the image of Christ. You cannot separate the spirit working his work of sanctification from the word of God. You cannot separate the two. The word must be then primary in every discipleship relationship. Discipleship must then involve reading the word and studying the word, memorizing the word, praying the word, applying the word. Now, last week, somebody came up to me, and and it's a good comment. I'm glad he did. He came up to me, and he talked about the fears of discipleship. I talked about one of those fears being the fear that we're going to have to now invest our time. That's a fear. Not the energy. That's a fear. This person also said that one of the fears in entering into a discipleship relationship is the fear of not knowing enough, right? It's a fear. I just don't know enough. I'm not ready. Well, a few things, a few comments for that. Number one, then seek someone to disciple you, which is on the flip side of discipleship. But even then, even then, if, even if you have that fear... I would say this, if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible and you have the spirit of Christ indwelling and sealing you, then the Lord can use you to grow somebody else in holiness. The word and the spirit. And so if that is your fear, if that is your fear, here's a suggestion. Call up somebody you know, call up somebody you know and ask them this question. Do you want to start reading your Bible with me? That's the question. Do you want to start reading your Bible with me? Once a week, once every two weeks. 
that becomes a discipleship relationship. We can complicate things, can't we? Will you read the Bible with me? Why? Because God's word has been breathed out by God. God's word carries with it the authority of God. God's word is the school that the spirit uses to then change the people of God. God's word is sufficient for all of life and godliness. Let's read the Bible together and watch the spirit work. I love what Colin Marshall writes. It's from a book, I think it's called The Trellis and the Vine. He writes this, imagine if all Christians as a normal part of their discipleship were caught up in a web of regular Bible reading, not only digging into the word privately, but reading it for mutual encouragement. Just imagine if that is permeating this church. Just imagine that. That throughout the week, throughout the week, you're getting together and reading scripture together. He writes, it's an exciting thought. It's hardly a controversial or outrageous idea. Most pastors would love their congregation to be involved in this kind of Bible ministry. Who could argue with that? When we were going to a conference, there was about, I don't know, 20 of us or so going to a conference a few months back. Uh, we, we had a, the, the two essentials. You have to stop and get gas and you have to stop and get your coffee, right? Um, so it's about 5.45, 6 in the morning, somewhere around there, maybe 6 o'clock, 6.15. And we stopped at Woods Coffee before we got the gas. And we stopped there. And what was amazing is you go in, and I just loved it. Uh, there was a group of guys at like 6.15 in the morning. They'd already been there for a half an hour. A group of guys reading scripture together from this church. And you're just looking at that, and you're saying, this is the, the word of God working on their lives. And imagine if that web is throughout the body. This is a discipleship relationship. The purpose is sanctification, Christ-likeness. The focus then is on God's sanctifying word. Leads to a third marker. A third marker. Marker number three, a discipleship relationship is also a personal relationship. A personal relationship. So yes, God's word must be primary in every discipleship relationship, but we must also remember that discipleship is more than simply imparting knowledge. Real, effective discipleship necessitates spending personal time with one another outside of God's word, in informal settings. Discipleship is knowledge coupled with life. We see that with Jesus and his disciples, Mark chapter 3, and Christ appointed 12. Why? So that, purpose statement, so that they would be with him. They would live with him and travel with him. Be taught by him in a very personal way outside of that public ministry. And it was because, it was because of this personal time spent with Jesus that these men were able to ask Christ very specific questions. Lord, teach us, not the crowds. Teach us, teach me to pray. It's Luke 11. 
It was because they spent this personal time with Christ that Jesus was able to say to them, it's Matthew 19, say to them, not the crowds, this is specific, personal, truly I say to you that you have who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the encouragement they needed at that time. He's able to give that to them. You know, there's a flip side. It's because of that personal time spent together that we now can give one another the rebuke when we need it. Mark 8, Jesus rebukes Peter specifically. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Peter was with him. He lived with him. He was taught by him. It's a very personal statement. They ate meals together. They walked the streets together. They traveled together. When you share personal life together, that is when questions can be asked and very pointed applications can be made. It's when change happens. One pastor puts it this way. It's a longer quote. It's worth it. Invite them over to your house regularly. That is important. The home is the epicenter of normalcy. It doesn't get any more real than life in the kitchen and the backyard. That is what your disciple needs to see. They need to see your quirks. By the way, we all are quirky in some way some more than others, and we know who you are. (laughs) They need to see our deficiencies as well as your Bible application in the normal, mundane, unexpected, and unscripted realities of family life and singleness. And if you've been in a discipling relationship, you've experienced this. Uh, There's there's one man, great friend, invested my life in him for for years. Uh, He's now a pastor in, in Texas. And he calls me up and he says, Patrick, I just wanted to talk to you about something that that you taught me. And I'm thinking, oh man, I want to know the theology that I just imparted, like the grand doctrine. He's like, it was in your house when your kids wouldn't go to sleep at night. I'm like, really, that's what you got out of this relationship? But it was, it was, I, I hope it was a positive example. It was just how, just a godly response, just a godly response. It was probably from Sarah, not from me. The quote continues, get to know their family and friends. Friends are the shapers of people. There's a sense in which discipleship is simply the pursuit of a highly intentional godly friendship. Such a key statement right there. The pursuit of a highly intentional godly friendship. Beyond your own relationship, your disciple will have other relationships. And the better you know them, the better you will know who influences your disciple. Enter their world as much as you can. Do not do constant Bible study. Did I read that right? Do not do constant Bible study. The Bible and the study of it has has to have a key place in discipleship. It must be primary. However, if you are only talking about the scripture, you are only being half as helpful to your disciple as you could be. Do things. Study, then apply. Your disciples need, need, need to see, hear all of that in action in your life. So a discipler is not a king who stays in his castle. A discipler is a servant. He knows those whom he's 
investing in. He spends time with them and among them. A discipleship relationship is a personal relationship. Marker number four. Marker number four. A discipleship relationship is an applicational relationship. It builds on what we just looked at. An applicational relationship. Discipleship is not just the study of God's word coupled with a personal friendship. No, discipleship is also about applying God's word and then living God's word. This is the hardest part of Bible study, isn't it? It's the hardest part of Bible study. It's personal application. And by personal application, I mean not applying God's word to the person next to you. Because we are so good at that. But applying God's word to yourself, I do not think, I'm going to go out on a limb, I do not think the silver bullet that we need here at EBC is one more Bible study. I don't think so. I think what we need here at EBC is men, women taking the scripture serious and then doing what? Not only mentally, but what? Then applying it. And thinking through those, those application questions and asking those hard questions, how do I put this into practice? And I can't tell you how to do that. That is personal application. It's the hardest part of, of friendships. It's an opening up ourselves to one another, admitting that there are areas that we must grow more Christ-like in. And it's funny that we don't do that, isn't it? Because everybody, everybody knows where we need to grow, but we're the ones who don't want to admit it. And so it's easy to hide from application. It's easy to listen to a sermon. It's easy to read a passage of scripture and then move on. We feel good, heads filled. But that is not how sanctification happens and that is not how a discipleship relationship works. So if discipleship is going to be truly purposeful, if it is going to be truly personal, if it is going to truly deal with Scripture, then it will be a relationship that strives to fulfill James chapter 1. Prove yourselves to be doers of the Word. It's one of the goals. Obey the Word. Apply the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. This is where our need, personal need, this is where our need for discipleship comes into play. It's what we looked at last week. We need one another, and they need us. We need friends holding us to the fire of God's truth. We need to be asking one another those, those probing questions, reading the scriptures together and then moving on to the question, what commands in this text must we obey? And then the follow-up, are we obeying them? Are we personally obeying them? What new thoughts about God have we learned from this text and are we humbled by them? What errors from the text must we avoid? And are we avoiding them? Make it personal. 
Well, these are probing questions that will spark real-life conversations. These are heart-issue questions that will lead to personal prayer for one another, questions that will lead us back to the cross and confession of sin. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's a principle. By the way, the context here is just everyday work. It's the context. But how much more is this true in our spiritual, in the spiritual realm? Two are better than one. Two are better than one. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Sounds an awful lot like Galatians. Bear one another's burdens. And it goes back to that principle, we need others and others need us, especially when it comes to personal application of God's truth. Do you struggle, do you struggle to apply God's word personally? Do you long to obey God's word personally? Then open yourself up to a discipling relationship because discipleship relationships are applicational relationships. Marker number five, marker number five. A discipleship relationship is an imitating relationship. An imitating relationship. Discipling others must include living a life worthy to be imitated. It means living a life of integrity. Walking by wisdom, biblical wisdom in decision making. Pursuing godly goals. Living by godly habits. So much so that you, with the Apostle Paul, can say, be imitators, mimickers, mimickers of me, just as I also am of Christ. You cannot rightly exhort someone else to holiness if you are not living a life of holiness yourself. You know what that's called, right? It's not discipleship. What is it called? It's called hypocrisy. We're looking for discipleship. This is Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He writes, you are witnesses. You saw our life. You heard our words. You know our heart. You're witnesses of what? How devoutly it refers to holiness and uprightly, righteously. Our calls to righteousness are coupled with a life of righteousness and blamelessly referring to reputation, irreproachable life. Paul says, you've witnessed all of this, how we, Paul, Silas, Timothy, how we behaved toward you believers. Now, here's the transition. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So on one side, you have Paul's devotion and uprightness and blamelessness, and that's what allows him 
to then exhort and encourage and implore. We live the life of holiness. Follow us as we follow Christ. We call you to a life of holiness. Verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's that intentional giving of yourself for others. And mark this, and this is where discipleship goes beyond you. Mark this, when a life of integrity is coupled with the power of God's word, that's when true change takes place. This is exactly what David experienced on the flip side of it. David, for a year, has a hardened heart. He's living a hypocritical life. He's living in unrepentant sin. He's trying to cover up his sin in every way possible, every way. But then he confesses in sin. How so? He's confronted by someone close to him. Listen to David's confession. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Forgive me, clean me. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cause me to walk in your holiness. Grant me a life of integrity. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. That's his prayer. Why, David? Why do you long for this holy life, this steadfast spirit, this forgiveness of sin? Why? Listen to verse 13. Because then, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Without a life of integrity, David's teachings would be wasted. But with a forgiven heart, with that steadfast spirit, we can put this in our terms, David's discipleship would be used by the Lord. This goes beyond us. Holiness of life goes beyond us. It's also for others. And then David's statement, and sinners will be converted to you. So again, back to that fear. You might be thinking, I don't know enough about God's word to disciple someone else. Or... I'm not experienced enough to disciple someone. I've never done it before. Well, here's a few questions. Are you living a life of integrity? Do you seek a steadfast spirit from the Lord? Do you love God's truth? Are you willing to read the scriptures with a fellow believer? Are you willing to apply God's word to your own life? And if that is true, and that's just what it means to be a Christian, by the way, if that is true, then you are ready. You're ready. Because you're able to say humbly, yes, but you're able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the motto of discipleship. That's who we each need to be in others' lives and who we need them to be in our life. We need relationships worthy of Christ-like imitation, don't we? We need those relationships. And if you know that you need them, the question then in turn is, could you be that person for someone else? Let's move to marker number six. 
Marker number six, a discipleship relationship is a humble relationship. It's a humble relationship. James 4.10 drives every discipleship relationship. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. It's driving every form of discipleship. And again, this should ease that fear because in a humble relationship, the fear is I'm not gonna know everything and so then if a question comes up, I'm not gonna know what to say. I'll tell you what to say. If you don't know the answer, guess what you say? I don't know the answer. It's a humble relationship. We're willing in humility to struggle through the hard issues of life together. The hard issues of theology, of doctrine. It is so prevalent in our day. If there is a disagreement, I guess you could say about anything, what do we do? I'm not going to talk to them anymore. Bring it into the church. I don't agree fully with that doctrine. I'm not going to talk to them anymore. I don't even know if they're a Christian. That's not true. But you struggle with the theology. You struggle together with the doctrine. You do that together. You work through those passages. You work through the scriptures. You're sharpened. You're changed. And vice versa. In humility, you talk about those struggles that you do have. Of course, there's trust that needs to be built, but you talk about those struggles where it is appropriate. Think of Jesus. Think of Jesus. Jesus let his apostles see him struggle in the garden. That is the Son of God. He let them hear him pray to the Father. He showed them his sorrow. Mark 14, he tells his apostles, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. One pastor writes, speak of your own sin and repentance. Dealing with sin is the nitty gritty of discipleship. They need to know how to deal with sin in their life, but they will learn best if they can see repentance in action in your own life. Show them that faith and repentance are the daily activities of broken people who need a savior and you are on that roll call. When you're willing to confess your own sin, you allow yourself to be vulnerable in the relationship that will create a level of trust between you and your disciple. And again, imagine if that is permeating the church. Just imagine that. A discipleship relationship is a humble relationship. Marker number seven. Marker number seven. A discipleship relationship is a praying relationship. A praying relationship. It piggybacks on humility because one's prayer life is perhaps the most vulnerable part of a person. You know, this is what we see in these discipling relationships throughout the Bible. We see relationships where there is mutual prayer. We see this with John the Baptist. Disciples come teach us to pray. We see this with Jesus. Again, that question, teach us to pray. We see it with Jesus in Gethsemane. In many of Paul's epistles, he says, let me tell you how I'm praying for you. And then he, in turn, says, pray for me. 
The reason why prayer is such an important part of discipleship is because prayer is such an indispensable habit within the Christian life. Holiness of life requires prayer. It's Ephesians 6. Humbleness of life requires prayer. That's 1 Peter 5. Gospel impact requires prayer. It's Ephesians 6, 19 through 20. It's indispensable. Why? Because prayer orients our minds around the glory of God. We pray, hallowed be your name. Our mind now is God-focused. Prayer reminds us of Christ's return. We pray, your kingdom come. Something beyond this. Prayer reminds us of our creatureliness and dependence. Give us today our daily bread. Prayer reminds us of our sin and need for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. Prayer reminds us of our commitment to one another. What is that commitment? That we would forgive everyone who's indebted to us. So closeness and trust and union and friendship and camaraderie and care and love, all of that is developed by entering the throne room of grace together. Put the slide back up just for a moment. Notice Jesus' words again, though. Give me my daily bread. What is it? Give us. Forgive us as we forgive. This is corporate. This is not just personal. This is together. And thus a discipleship relationship must be a praying relationship. Which leads then into the eighth and final marker. You didn't think I'd get there, but it is possible. Eighth and final marker of a discipling relationship. Marker number eight. A discipleship relationship is a reproducing relationship. It is a reproducing relationship. So that is to say that one of the goals of a discipling relationship is that you would not stay in that formal discipling time together forever. That's not the goal. It's easy though, isn't it, to get comfortable? It's easy to get comfortable within a group, to never branch out. It's easy to become clicky, satisfied with a tight-knit group. That's not how discipling works. Imagine if that happened with Paul and Timothy. And Timothy says, no, I'm just here with Paul. Or imagine the faithful man, I'm just here with Timothy. Discipleship is reproducing. Jesus, back to Mark 3, Jesus appointed 12 so that they would be with him, but then this note, and that he could send them out to preach. So Jesus chooses them to send them. He spends time with them so that they would invest in others. Again, it's that principle from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul disciples Timothy. Timothy disciples faithful men. Faithful men disciple others. On and on that process goes. It's reproducing. And so a good discipler then, a good discipler does not always lead the conversations. A good discipler 
is one that equips and readies. With that goal, I'm going to send you out. You then need to invest in others. A good discipler sees their investment in someone else in light of eternity. And the coming generations who must also grow in God's word through that other person. So a healthy discipleship relationship is one that actually ends with the goal of investing in the lives of others. Again, to quote this previous pastor, the end goal isn't the person sitting in front of you. It's bigger than that. It is people from every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping God. You need to be looking beyond the person you are discipling and preparing your disciple to disciple someone else. There to receive in order to give. You must be reminding them that soon they will need to find someone to disciple. And again, imagine if that permeates the church. So these are the relationships we long to see develop here at EBC. Purposeful, teaching, personal, applicational, imitating, humble, prayerful, reproducing relationships. This is how the gospel is preserved. This is how the gospel is guarded. This is what Christ has called us to do. Intentionally and selflessly devote yourselves to others for their spiritual growth. And if you follow this call from Christ, just imagine what the results would be if we take discipleship to heart, think of the Christ-likeness we would experience personally than that which would permeate the church. Think of the community that would be built here at EBC. Think of the gospel impact we could have in this valley. It's not a pipe dream though, is it? We just take that step. We take that step together and watch how the Spirit Will work. Father, I pray that you would instill in us once again our need for one another. And Lord, you would give to us this desire a loving desire, a selfless desire, a desire for the glory of Christ, a desire for discipleship. Lord, yes. It will take effort on our end. We thank you that you give us the power to fulfill that, the energy from you. Allow, Lord, a discipleship culture to indeed grow here. Let each of us be a part of that. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.